0: Well, from time to time, our five-year-old daughter, Samara, likes to watch a show called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Yeah, some of you know this show. It's a show about a a tiger family, and Daniel's the star of the show. He lives in a neighborhood and interacts with different people, and he learns important lessons about sharing and overcoming his fear of, like, getting a shot, which Samara's obsessed with, so she watches it over and over, and he teaches all these other moralistic lessons. And the first time I watched the show with Samara, I thought, there's something oddly familiar about it, you know? Uh, It's the theme song, and there's something I had heard before. And then I realized that Daniel Tiger is a variant of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Anyone, of course, remember Mr. Rogers, right? Guy comes in, right, and takes off his dress shoes and puts on the sneakers and the cardigan that apparently his mom knit, all those cardigans that he wore on the show, which is just I love that. Anyway, Mr. Rogers was the ultimate neighbor. He's kind and he's inquisitive. He, he knew the mail carrier and the local police officer. He'd take you on field trips to the neighborhood store and businesses and introduce you to people of all kinds of different backgrounds and ethnicities and vocations, which was really cool, especially for 1968. And when you think of what it means to be a neighbor, my mind goes two places. One is Mr. Rogers, and the second one is the story that we're going to focus on tonight. Would you stand as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The story begins like this. And a a a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on the journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Which of these three, the man, uh, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Lord, thank you for this word, this um, passage that is quite familiar to many, many people, and I pray that its familiarity would not prevent us from hearing what you have to say today. Would you open us afresh in our minds and our hearts to hear you, and once we do, to have courage to obey. Amen. You may be seated. The story of the Good Samaritan, as it's come to be known, is one of those biblical stories that even if you've never read the Bible, you sort of know what it's about. There's even a Good Samaritan law that protects people who try and help those who help people injured in car wrecks and things like that. And usually people read this story as Jesus teaching us how we're supposed to behave toward other people. And while it is true that treating other people well is something that Jesus sort of is about, right? Uh, This isn't the main part of the story. Let's dig in and see what it is about. In the beginning of Luke chapter 10, which is the chapter that this story occurs in, Jesus calls 72 disciples to go out on a mission to the surrounding cities and towns that Jesus was going to visit. They were to go and proclaim the good news that with Jesus' arrival, so also was arriving the kingdom of God that salvation was available to every single person who puts their trust in Jesus. And the thing about these 72 missionaries is that we don't even know who they were. We don't know their ages, their gender, their education, their experience or their expertise. We don't know their hometowns and we don't even know how long they knew Jesus. We don't know anything about them which means they could be anybody. What we do know is that they had faith in Jesus. They obeyed his call to go and they came back rejoicing at their success because Jesus had worked in and through them. And then Jesus rejoices and gives thanks to God the Father that he saves those who trust in him with childlike faith and he praises God the Father that he reveals the way of salvation to those that the world sees as nobodies. And he makes it hard on those who think that they have life all figured out. Those he calls the wise in their own eyes, or the self proclaimed intelligentsia. Jesus tells the 72 who are nobodies in the eyes of the world to rejoice because their names are written in the book of heaven. Their faith has saved them. Which brings us to our story this evening. Right after that episode, a lawyer comes up to Jesus. Not a lawyer like we might know today with a suit and tie, but this lawyer is a scribe or an expert in the religious laws of the Bible. He's part of Jewish society uh, and the part of that society that was very highly esteemed. He would have been well-educated, well-connected, well-thought-of, and well-aware that this rabbi Jesus was mingling with certain types of people declared sinful by the standards of the law. So the text says that the lawyer came to test Jesus, and he did this publicly. Jesus is out in the open, in the public square. He's already talking to other disciples, and the lawyer comes to test him. It's a challenge. In the ancient world, a public test or a challenge between two well-known teachers might be akin to, like, the triple dog dare in the Christmas story, something you just can't get out of. You have to go at it, or or a walk-off in an underground male model Club, like Zoolander, anyone? Come on, it's a walk-off. right, all right. So pay attention to the challenge. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some observations. Presumably, the lawyer has heard Jesus' comments a few verses earlier about how the father seems to prefer those who are oppressed and left behind by the elite. The lawyer himself is one of the elite. And the prevailing understanding at the time was that the, the righteous, law-abiding, religious, and pious person, people just like that lawyer, they're the ones who are supposed to be saved. On the one hand, the lawyer is likely trying to get Jesus to say something unpopular in front of the crowd. He's baiting Jesus to say something that could be refuted by the prevailing religious establishment. On the other hand, since this lawyer is one of the religious elite, perhaps his question has a bit of truth to it. If, as you say, Jesus, the Father hides the way of salvation to the wise and intelligent, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because I'm one of the wise and intelligent. It's a fascinating question that reveals a lot about the lawyer. How does one inherit something did you hear his question what must I do to inherit eternal life usually you inherit something because you're part of a family you don't do anything to inherit something like I didn't do anything to inherit the fact that I'm five foot seven and have stinky feet and have an irrational fear of spiders like I didn't do anything to get that good gift thank you The fact that this guy thinks he can do something to inherit eternal life reveals at least two things about him. First, it reveals that he isn't as sure of himself and his legal way of relating to God as he thought he was. He has questions, he has doubts. Second, it reveals that he's so used to his privilege and his status and his wealth and his power that he thinks that there's actually something he can do to receive an inheritance from God. Now, Jesus isn't one to get caught up in public squabbles that he doesn't control, but he returns the lawyer's serve with a counter-question. Well, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? Subtext, you are supposed to be an expert in interpreting that law. What does it say? And the lawyer comes back with a genuinely brilliant and correct answer. He quotes two crucial texts from the Hebrew scriptures, two texts that when put together form what we call the great commandment. The commandment is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself in other parts of scripture summed up all the teaching of the law and the prophets in the exact same way. So the lawyer has the right answer. He has the right knowledge. Then he puts his foot in his mouth. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? In the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was an important question, but one that could easily be answered. The typical answer to such a question would be, faithful, law-abiding Israelites, those who live nearby and are good neighbors in the community. That's who a neighbor was in the ancient world. It would not include people like notorious sinners, lepers, beggars, morally suspect people like tax collectors or prostitutes. And it certainly would exclude, it would exclude non-Jews like Greeks and Romans and other pagans, and maybe the worst of all would be Samaritans. It would definitely exclude Samaritans. Samaritans were almost worse than Greeks and Romans in the Jewish thought. At least Greeks and Romans had their own false religion, but the Samaritans claimed to have the same God as Israel, And they followed the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Samaritans were despised as heretical. They were thought of as half-breeds with a mixture of Hebrew blood and that of other foreigners. And a common belief was that eating with a Samaritan was the same as eating pork, right? For a kosher Jewish person, that would be horrible. When the lawyer is asking Jesus who his neighbor is, he's really asking Jesus to justify the lawyer's prejudices by defining who his neighbor is not. This seems like a win-win for the lawyer. If Jesus says, as expected, your neighbor is a faithful Israelite who follows the law and contributes to community, then the lawyer might say to himself, I do all of that. I will inherit eternal life. But if Jesus says something crazy, like God has sent me to bring the good news of eternal life to Samaritans and Gentiles, as well as Jews, then the lawyer would feel like he had won a decisive victory in public. But Jesus is not so easily cornered. As often his preferred method of teaching, Jesus tells a story. Love a good story. More accurately, he tells the type of a story called a parable. Parables are a unique genre of story that teachers would employ for a particular purpose. And that purpose was not to make general theological statements, and it wasn't to teach precise theological concepts. Parables are told for one reason, and that is to elicit a response. This parable, Jesus introduces, uh, in this parable, he introduces a familiar scenario to anyone living in that time and place. A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. That may not mean much to us, but to the locals of Jesus' day, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. It was about 17 miles long from Jerusalem at 2,600 feet above sea level down to Jericho at 825 feet below sea level. The road was rocky, arid, twisty, surrounded by rock outcroppings and caves that made perfect hideouts for bandits. From other historical texts, we know that in 68 BC, the general Pompey took a whole legion of military men and tried to clean out all the bandits that came back. Later on, after this story takes place, during the Crusades, the Crusaders put up an armored fortification halfway through that 17-mile journey with permanent soldiers there to help see people through. It was so bad, okay? So, it's not surprising then that in this story Jesus tells, an, an unnamed man is going down this road, and he's beaten, and he's stripped, and he's left on the side of the road dead, half dead, left for dead. And then we're introduced to three passers by. The first man is a priest. And priests were held in high esteem. They're relatively wealthy and were considered in the upper echelon of the social status. He was going down the road. Ancient people spoke kind of literally about directions. So, like, Jericho is actually northeast of Jerusalem. So, like, when I'm going to Vancouver, I say I'm going up to Vancouver or I'm going down to Seattle. but what they say is that he's going down to Jericho because he's coming from this high place in Jerusalem and going down to Jericho, right? So he, he's going on this journey, which probably means that the priest had served his two-week, it's kind of like, uh, if, if you're familiar with the Army Reserve or something like that, you've got to do your two weeks uh, a year kind of thing. And so the priests, they'd all have their local little little places, right? Um, Small town priests or whatever, but every, for two weeks a year, each priest had to go up to the temple and serve their temple time uh, do their two weeks at the temple and it was like the most holy thing that they got to do probably all year and so this man is coming down from that probably finishing his duty and going back to his hometown and so he sees this man who's been beaten uh, but he passes by on the other side of the road he avoided the man in need didn't even get close to him and scholars argue different reasons why the priest would do that Uh, The first reason is that if the priest didn't know uh, if the man was alive or dead, and so it's been postulated that if the man was dead and the priest came into contact with him, uh, that he would become unclean, and then he would not be able to do his priestly duties for a period of time until he got clean. This is just like cleanliness laws, right? But the fact that he's going down from the temple means that the holiest part of his service was completed already. Uh, More than that, there were actually certain loopholes in the law such that if a priest came upon a dead person who is unaccompanied, it was their obligation to, to bury them. The fact that the priest doesn't even go to see if the man's alive or dead, there's no excuse for that. He just skirts the responsibility. Another detail in the story is that the victim had been stripped and beaten and left half dead. The two main ways in the ancient world that you could identify someone was what they dressed like and their accent. If this guy is not wearing any clothes and he's beaten to half dead and not able to talk, the priest couldn't know if he was Jew or Gentile, Samaritan, anything. And so what, you're at a 50 50 there, right? You could assume maybe I should help this guy or not. And the priest does not. He passes by. Next came a Levite. Levites were below priests on the social pecking order, but still highly esteemed when compared to the the typical Jewish layperson. They were assistants to the priests, and they did much of the holy busy work in the temples and later synagogues. In particular, uh, this particular Levite saw the beaten man on the side of the road, but he too passed by on the other side. Now, what happens next is a surprise. In the descending honor of the travelers on the road, priest to Levite, the common hearer of this day and age would think the next person's gonna be a Jewish layperson. That would be the pecking order. But instead, we all know it's a hated Samaritan. Like the Jewish priest and the Levite, the Samaritan saw the man beaten and left dead on the side of the road. But it is the next set of verbs that are important. The first thing when he sees the man is he felt compassion. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on the wounds. He put the injured man on his own animal. He brought him into an inn and he took care of him. He paid for the man's stay and promised to return to cover any further costs that the man may incur while staying at the inn the Samaritan shows an extravagant sort of compassion and care for a complete stranger. Keep in mind that this story would have been powerful enough if just a Jewish layperson had done this good deed for the stranger, but to drive the point home, Jesus chooses a Samaritan to model neighborly love. Like the lawyer, the priest, and the Levite knew the law, They taught others the law. The priest had probably taught others the law when he was up doing his temple thing. And on that 17-mile journey, somehow the cognitive dissonance of teaching something and not living it out happened to him. And I think we all probably know something about that. I do, because I teach a lot. And you do, because you hear a lot. And sometimes there's a disconnect from how we behave, isn't there? Knowing things is not the same as practicing them. In this parable, the hated Samaritan is one who loves with his heart, compassion, his whole self, right? Remember the the great commandment, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Listen to to how the Samaritan does that. He loves with his whole heart. He feels gut-wrenching compassion, He loves with his whole self, that's the soul, by making himself the servant of a stranger. He loves this stranger with his mind by engaging what he knows about first aid and and creates a a plan of care for him. And he loves him with his strength, both his physical strength of lifting him up, putting him on his beast of burden, and his resources. He gives his money to help this man. The Samaritan shows himself to be the keeper of the law, and by implication... He is the type of person that can inherit eternal life. Now, pay attention to the question that Jesus asked the lawyer. At the end of this parable, the lawyer, or remember at the beginning, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But after the parable, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell In the robber's hands. There in public, the lawyer had no chance but to reply, the one who showed mercy. Are there ethics and morals we can learn from this parable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus has just challenged the notion that neighbor is a term restricted to those who live in proximity to me who resemble my ethnic and cultural background, who are from the same social strata or the same faith community. He blows that out of the water, that that is no longer the boundaries for what a neighbor is. In fact, Jesus challenges the lawyer and implicitly all of us not to worry about who out there is my neighbor. In asking the lawyer which of the three men proved to be a neighbor, Jesus challenges us to take the initiative, to see that a neighbor in need and then to respond. You get that, how we switch that around? The lawyer wants to know who his neighbor is so he knows who he has to be nice to and who he can reject. Jesus is saying, don't worry about who your neighbor is. You be a good neighbor. You take the initiative. The difference of culture between Bellingham and the 21st century and the parable of the Samaritan is staggering. I mean, one could hardly believe. Like, like, like even even some of the most pig-headed people I know, in a one-on-one situation, it takes a special kind of low to see a person hurting on a one-on-one situation just not do something good, even if it's call 911, right? Like, it's it's hard to fathom that in Bellingham, at least in the bubble that I live in, that, that that would happen, right? But that's not the case in the culture that Jesus is talking about. Divisions of race and class and religion were deeply divisive. They weren't just behind the scenes, but they were out in the open. It was expected. You would be shamed by your own people if you helped the Samaritan. I think what our culture struggles with more is complacency. We respond with outrage on social media when bad things happen, like mass shootings or racially motivated killings. But if we have privilege, and most of us do, we don't usually take the initiative to make any next steps. And frankly, the reason is because we don't have to. If we're part of the dominant demographic, we just don't have to. Jesus' lesson should challenge us to be good neighbors to others before they ask for help. So yes, this has good morals to teach us. all this is true, and it's a message we need to keep hearing, but I don't think that that is the primary message of Jesus' teaching in Luke 10. I think, I think that the primary teaching is that Jesus wants us to see how difficult it is for anyone, including this lawyer, to perfectly follow the law. How nobody actually lives like the good Samaritan. Maybe we do some things and surprise ourselves. Maybe we're generally pretty great, but nobody is able to live that way all the time, that selflessly all the time. Jesus is answering the lawyer's original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you can, follow the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Problem is, when you really start playing out what that commandment requires of us, Who does that well on a consistent basis? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Not me. Probably not you. When I start to play out what it actually requires of me, I find myself woefully inadequate. And it's when we come to this realization, no matter what we know about the Bible, no matter how much we're taught from wise teachers, just that knowledge can't save us. Only Jesus can save us. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, blessed are those who have discovered that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets for us. Like the Samaritan, Jesus has compassion on our stripped and beaten souls. Like the Samaritan, Jesus is the one who binds up our wounds. Um, words directly from, prophet, from the prophecy of Jeremiah 30, by the way, how, how God one day will send a rescue to bind up the broken and the wounded. Like the Samaritan, Jesus bears our burdens and pays our debts. And like the Samaritan, Jesus would be hated and rejected by his own people, left for dead, actually died to provide salvation for us all. I said before that parables are told to elicit to a response, and I believe the response Jesus desires the lawyer to have and us to have is realizing that for all of our privilege and striving, we can't inherne that we can't earn inheritance to eternal life. It's a gift that Jesus provides through his sacrifice, through his being the good neighbor. Once we come to terms with receiving this gift of love and grace and forgiveness, it frees us to be extravagant neighbors, to strive in the right direction, to stumble in the right direction, to emulate the good Samaritan It's not an either or. But I consistently come face to face with my failure and I am thankful that Jesus is the one who actually is very much like the good Samaritan. He actually is able to live that life and and he did that to rescue us, to forgive us, to give us new life. Kind of as a lead up to communion, I just want to offer a moment of silent confession now to just Bear before the Lord where we're inadequate, where we're coming up short. Ask for forgiveness, but don't let it stay there. Let me just encourage you, don't let it stay there. Ask also for eyes that see who my neighbor is, for courage to, to take initiative to be a good neighbor because there's a lot of hurting people and there's a broken system that we're living in and the world needs people that are good neighbors.